hey tomorrow the pluto goes into aquarius it's literally the dawning of the age of aquarius it sure is and i so, can't wait <laughs> so maybe you never know it'll be a new level of consciousness for our, for all of humanity and maybe things will get better no Okay. I, I feel a sense okay. of mounting chaos in doing a little bit. So mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I don't know what to tell y'all. <laughs> bring on the zombies. Bring on an asteroid. I, I do not know what to tell y'all. Well, on that note. That's what I said. <laughs> for episode two of art class what's up everybody how are you doing this is lincoln center's new podcast all about art and artists who are creating at the intersection of innovation and beauty i am rocky jones and as always i'm here with my two amazing excellent wonderful gorgeous co-hosts first we have dr lee bynum hello dr lee bynum Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? The same. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Under all that snow. Oh, my God. The weather here has just taken the worst kind of turn. I, I I don't know whose objective this was. And I also don't understand how we're having an uglier winter in New York than you are in Minnesota. None of this makes sense. I mean, sorry about it. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, if it, if it makes you feel better, it is very, very cold. It, it does because that natural schadenfreude just kind of runs through my veins. So like, I am glad to hear that there is something that y'all are going through because it, it, a few it, nights ago, it's 17 unpleasant. degrees here. Do you know what I would give for 17 degrees right now? (laughs) That would would be warmth. That would be tropical. (laughs) And of course, that voice you just heard, the lovely, the luminous Paige Reynolds. Hello, Paige. How are you? Hello, hello. Doing great. Even better now that you call me lovely and luminous. (laughs) Um, Magical, mysterious, moisturized. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> moisturize again thank you because you this is a little cold oh i have felt dry and crusty so i'm glad i don't look, glad I don't look. <laughs> you certainly do not you certainly do not and you have made it back up to my neck of the woods is that right yes i am here wearing uh shoes and a hat in the house because that's how <laughs> and you know watching videos of second lines and parades happening in New Orleans <laughs> while I am up here in the frigid cold but Frosted that's all right I'm visiting friends and loved ones you know so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be happy about that, and yes. the, the king yes. cake will still be waiting for me when I. Get yes, it will. Yes, it will. Yes, it with will. With the baby. 
Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, I just want to thank everyone for listening to our first episode. It was a labor of love that, I mean, almost a year in the making. Oh, God, you're so right. Yeah. You you really are. Wow. (laughs) So, I mean, the last two months, child. <laughs> so much stress. Um, but you know, to have it out in the world and to have such a lovely response, and people have been so nice on social media and you know, to our faces. <laughs> um, and so that's just really, really gratifying. And um, I'm so excited for this adventure that we're all gonna take together. Me too. I'm excited for everything else we have planned. I Mm -hmm. think that first episode was just such a good intro to like us and our minds and what we find interesting and the kind of conversations we want to have. So, you know, I hope folks like it and keep sharing and we have a lot more on the way. We have a lot more on the way. These brilliant folks here. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You should see that document full of ideas. It's Almost a little overwhelming, but <laughs> but good, but good, but exciting. Um, and today is no different. We have a very jam-packed show for you today, chock full of all sorts of wonderful things. Um, the thing I'm super excited. Well, I'm I'm super excited about all of it, but um, so excited about um, our first kinfolk segment Woo-hoo! led by. Um, again, the magically moisturized Paige Reynolds <laughs> <laughs> and featuring Christopher Fuller of the Black Music Project. So exciting. Yeah. So exciting. I'm excited to talk to Chris about the Black Music Project and just the credible, like incredible digital exhibition that it is and just what it represents. There's just so much so many folks who are unsung who are part of it so much just black presence throughout american music that needs to be uplifted and so i know that's gonna be a good conversation it I is gonna excite folks and make light bulbs go off and all that <laughs> that's, how that's how i felt looking at the black music project anyway so and to share that with the audience excited well we cannot wait and before that um we're gonna have a conversation with uh the fabulous michael mason who is a professor the chair of africana studies at berkeley school of music and we're going to talk to him all about uh the program that they're running up there and um just sort of this i think this thing that we've all noticed and felt i think Recently, the news came down of all of the shows that have been canceled lately, um, specifically uh, Rap Shit on HBO Max. And I think there's just this feeling that there's just sort of this retrenchment when it comes to, you know, Black culture, Black art. And we really want to talk to him about this 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 thing that we're all noticing and and naming and sort of what uh, his program is doing to preserve our culture our art um i mean have have you noticed am i 
I'm not crazy, right? <laughs> not about this, no. <laughs> yeah, <okay>. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's that whole pattern of like, you know, the pendulum swings one way and then mm-hmm. swings hard back to the other side. And so, I mean, I, I remember talking, having a college professor at Howard talk about this when I took like Blacks in the Arts and he he first started talking about it with film and like how waves of black film would and TV would go, but pointed out that like, it's everything, you know, once we have a certain amount of visibility and progress and accolades and praise, there's also a very hard backlash to that. Uh Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and it feels like um, if you're tracing this most recent round of it back, it feels like around 2021, the pendulum started to swing back really hard mm-hmm. and it's not hard to understand why, right? Like the the sort of so-called racial reckoning that we were experiencing beginning in the summer of 2020 really did mean that people were going to have to sit with a certain amount of discomfort around the ways that whether or not you are you think of yourself as an active participant in America's racist set of policies. And and I'm going to openly disagree with some folks who may or may not be running for president that America does have an issue with being a racist country, right? Like we, we can't just sort of have a new set of facts that aren't really borne out by the evidence. Like we actually have institutionalized a lot of racist policies in places. And if we don't talk about them, we have no shot at redressing them. And they don't just go away because someone says, I'm tired of really thinking about racism anymore. So let's not. Mm-hmm. Let's let's just call the whole thing off, right? Like that that's not how this works. There, there are conversations that have to be had. There are things that have to be reconciled. And and I think a lot of things ended up under this funny banner of CRT, critical race theory, that weren't really, right? Like people took the moment to to lump a bunch of things together that were creating a lot of discomfort. And in, instead of actually trying to process what the moment was, people said, we can sort of skirt around this if we label it a thing. And the number of things that ended up in that bucket from you know, uh, critiques of like queer straight alliances in school, all kinds of curricular things, books that are are being banned, like we were talking about two weeks ago. None of that really has anything to do with critical race theory. And critical race theory is also not a thing that's actively taught in K through 12 settings, right? But it, it didn't matter. And I think on the other side of it, anything that can be labeled diversity, anything that is sort of challenging the status quo, has been something that we could dismiss or could be lumped in together. And as a result, it feels like lots of things that were meant to promote or preserve aspects of Black culture have have really been pushed to the side. And, And it's highly alarming, but I'm very excited to talk to Professor Mason today, because I I think about what they're doing at Berkeley as being a potential remedy to that in the same way that the work that they're doing at the Black Music Project actually runs counter to this idea that, no, we can't talk about how we got to where we are right now. Ashe and amen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, you know, I 
am someone, especially sort of given my nine to five who has felt and witnessed this, <laughs> uh, you know, from the from the front row, um, sort of this this pendulum swing. Um, and it's it's really weird how, you know, in 2020, 2021, you know, we had all of this, you know, oh, let's learn, let's hold hands, uh, let us apologize for all of the, you know, centuries of oppression and violence, and let's get down on our knees in mm. our in our kinte cloth mm. and <laughs> mm. I forgot and, about that. <laughs> and all of that that insanity. Um where, you know, it was clear that there was, you know, a problem and we needed to have these conversations and these conversations. And, you know, we joke on the score all the time, like, oh, it's so important. It's so important. It's so important. <laughs> and now here we are in 2024, not only have all of those conversations sort of gone by the wayside, um, not only is it just like we're tired of talking about these things and therefore we will never sort of redress them because like it makes me feel uncomfortable um, to think about this. But like now in so many places, like these things are actively dangerous. And so I'm wondering if we need to maybe just sort of have a conversation where we actually like once and for all just sort of define what CRT is, define what EDI is, um, define all of these things. Because I say this all the time, but it's like people's brains reset at midnight. And it's like all of these things that we understood very acutely <laughs> just a few short years ago, things that made complete and total sense that everyone understood that there was a problem that needed to be fixed. Every generation of Black folks and folks of color in this country that have asked every generation of white folks in this country to, like, recognize and fix these problems that we're not, we're not all crazy. We're not all lazy. We're not all looking for a handout. We actually are here trying to live better lives, trying to get that equity, trying to live in a society that doesn't oppress us doesn't try to kill us for just breathing <laughs> so i i don't know lee like you you have studied all of these things um academically so what is what is a good academic definition of critical race theory um so critical race theory is just a a, a legal framework for understanding the role that politics and economics have played in institutional racism, right? So what it does is it helps people to understand that, you know, the, the thing that's been so challenging about uh, race in America, it's, it's not just, as you're pointing out, like a, a free set of ideas that are not tethered to anything. It's not just, oh, I don't, I don't like Black people, so I'm not going to buy my papers from this newspaper boy, right? Like it's something instead that says in our actual policies, in the ways that things were framed, they were framed in a way that disadvantaged some people in favor of others, and that there was, uh, there was intentionality around it, right? So if you take something like the GI Bill, right, that is generally thought to have built the American middle class, what does it mean if you are a, a Black veteran in 1945 who 
cannot use the GI Bill to get a home because of redlining, right? Like, which was legal, widely in practice and limited where Black people could get loans for homes. Or, or what does it mean if you're, again, a Black vet, you're back from the war, you want to go to Ole Miss, but they legally don't have to take you because you're Black. And at the same time, the wording of the GI Bill doesn't force the government to give that money to Tougaloo or some other HBCU instead. So like there was just a group of people that didn't, that literally did not benefit from this. And it wasn't accidental, right? Everyone would have known what the laws were and what that meant. And sort of in the same way, if you think about like social security, um, social security was, was never a neutral thing. When social security was passed in, in the same time period, there were a couple of careers that were explicitly, like explicitly excluded, not just left out, but explicitly excluded. Porters, domestic workers, migrant farm workers, right? So if we're thinking about the 1940s, literally, who is that? It is black women. It is black men. It is, uh, generally Mexican men and women, Chinese men and women, Filipinos, Filipinas, indigenous people. And I'm using those terms specifically because depending upon where you were geographically, there were, you know, ethnic enclaves that people were very much experiencing as being disrupted, right? And left these folks out. So again, we had this major shift in public policy that was meant to provide a social safety net and said, unless you are one of these folks, right? And the the disproportionate numbers of people of color who were left out of that conversation, this is part of why there is um, unequal access to wealth right now. The generational wealth issue in this country is is really very much tied into like when your family got here and who your family was. Like none of this is happenstance. Right. So I, I think when we're when we're really having these conversations about whether or not America is racist, there is an institutional piece of it. And it's an institutional piece that came with intentionality at the time of the Civil War. People were not confused about what it was spinning on. Right. Like so all of these conversations right now about whether or not it was really about slavery, they knew it then. Right. You can read those newspapers. You can read those books. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. Biggest book in the country at the time because it captured the zeitgeist where people were really having this conversation around how slavery was creating had completely destabilized something. And this was completely just about race. There wasn't another reason that people were indentured in that way in the country. So now when we're looking back at this and folks are saying, wow, this is really uncomfortable for kids to have to hear because a big part of this conversation about what is being allowed in curricula, what is being allowed to continue has to do with the levels of perceptions of, of comfort of kids, right? And Rocky, you and I have talked a hundred times about, you know, people assuming that they have a right to comfort, mm -hmm. which, you know, was coming at the expense of someone else getting to express their actual experiences. And, and this has sort of bled to a lot of things, not just about curricula, not just about books that you can access in the library, what TV shows are happening, right? What, what shows are getting produced, the ways that we are acknowledging people, it's all a part of a continuum. And right now there's deep discomfort and a lack of educational understanding about the history of this country. So it, it does become something very easy to scapegoat. And I, I think this is the piece that I, I really am hoping folks can push back against because you can eliminate every EDI program in the country. It doesn't actually 
change the fact that these things happened and that there is a very large group of us that are actively agitating to end these kinds of policies that continue to benefit certain groups at the expense of others. That is such a, a helpful framing. And I I often feel like people's discomfort with that reality is what's really showing up when mm-hmm. they see mm-hmm. when they see black people just existing. <laughs> like, people don't want to be reminded that just like, yeah, we exist and we've been wronged and you can probably be a part of the solution. And so they see us just existing and all of a sudden it's critical race theory. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Just because we're existing and telling some of the truth of our history and, you know, just who we are and, you know, the very hard, real facts of our reality. And <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's critical race theory. So I, yeah, that's because people don't want to confront what you're talking about right now. Um, yeah, it's wild how people's discomfort manifests. Mm-hmm. And what is the end game, though? It's, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, other than like our annihilation. Um, <laughs> but, but sorry. <laughs> no, but seriously, it's like it's like the idea that like okay, well, we've just decided that we're just discom- we're we are we are uncomfortable talking about these things, and therefore, like it's just going to end. And like, that's how we stop racism. That's how we, we stop. No, it's like, that's how you stop the conversation, I guess. But like, you're not actually stopping the problem. And racism actually, funnily enough, is a problem for everyone. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, racism hurts White people as much as it does, well, not as much as it does, but like it in in its own way, right? Like it it shows up in this very, very funny way. And and I feel like what it's doing, it's creating a country that is so disconnected both to its own past and its own present, that as we are moving to this place where the demographics are shifting so much, we in, in fewer than 20 years, white people won't be a majority. And we're going to have a country that is not educated enough to understand why the systems we have are set up. And and hopefully this is not like a huge tangent, but I read a study yesterday um, and I'm going to say a couple of things that are going to sound like I'm flattening gender, but I just want to really represent the way the study framed this. The study was trying to disprove the notion that men have a better sense of direction than women do. And this is something that, you know, you always hear growing up and like a lot of people really do try to frame this as biology. Like there's some sort of evolutionary advantage to individuals with the Y chromosome having a different sense of spatial awareness than people who have two X chromosomes. And instead, What the study demonstrated is that because boys are more likely to be encouraged to play outside than girls, it just means you grow up with a different sense of direction, right? And and stuff like this is very interesting to me, not just because of where I feel like I sit in in the whole, you know, gender binary, but also because I have a terrible sense of direction. And I've always wondered what that was about. I never played outside. I went outside like twice when I was a kid. So like this whole thing started to make a lot of sense. But the fact of the matter is there are all of these things that are just completely socially constructed that we're constantly trying to like, you know, couch in this language of this is just what is, this is what nature has intended. This group of people is good at this or are the beneficiaries of this because it's just reality and not because 
somebody at some point either did a thing or constructed a narrative that explains this in a way that's advantaging one group over another. Like the ways that these kind of things show up from jokes on sitcoms to actual the way evidence is presented at trials and cases of like mm. vehicular manslaughter, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like this is, all of this is relevant because we live in a country where our perceptions shape the, the actual systems and institutions that we have. And I, I think this is why it was so easy for so many people to sort of latch on to this thing that like, you know, uh, Dr. Claudine Gay did a thing as opposed to was participating in the same system in the same ways that anybody else is. And, and that the critique, the application of the critique is what was different. Like I, I literally just went through grad school 15 minutes ago. I remember like how these conversations show up and around whom over a lot of the same stuff. Right. And, and that's, again, this is perspectival, but, but people talk about it as if it's like biological or just is. And, and I think, this is also very uncomfortable to have to understand I may be a part of a group that is benefiting from something because somebody constructed a narrative that's, that, that said we get to have this. And these are all the ways that it fell together at somebody else's expense. And it's still happening. Just because the narrative was shaped 500 years ago doesn't mean that the, the benefits were locked in time. This is not about 1619. All of the stuff mm-hmm. about... You know, Social Security, this is in the 1940s. Our, our grandparents were alive, right? So the, this is not distant history. The, this is right now. This is right now. I mean, my parents were alive right. <laughs> in the right. 1940s. Yeah. 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 But I guess that shows how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I think all of this goes to show just how important it is to have spaces, have programs like what's going on up at Berkeley to preserve our history and preserve our culture and preserve our art. So I cannot wait for this conversation with Professor Michael Mason. And why should we? Let's get right into it. Who needs delayed gratification? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. It's 2024. Um, So we will be right back with Professor Michael Mason. And we're back. And we have a very special guest with us this afternoon, and I am super, super excited to share a little bit about him. Michael C. Mason is the newly appointed inaugural chair of the Africana Studies Department at the Berkeley College of Music. Mm-hmm. In his role, Dr. Mason collaborates with all Berkeley campuses and learning environments regarding the impact of the global African diaspora on arts and culture. His top priorities include building the curriculum for a Bachelor of Music program in Black Music and Culture, which is planned for fall 2024, as well as designing future master's degrees in Africana Studies. The division will offer courses such as Women in Africa and African Diasporic Cultures, Black Liberation Music, and The Sugar Road, A Sweet and Sour History of the African Diaspora, to students at both the college and the conservatory. A native of Baltimore, 
Mason holds a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature from Loyola University, Maryland, a master's degree in K-12 Educational Administration, and a PhD in Higher Educational Administration from the Lynch School of Education and Human Development at Boston College. He also served as an Administrative Fellow at the Graduate School of Education at Harvard University. Dr. Mason, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Um, This this program is is just something that we were all over the moon about and and kept talking about in in multiple forms because it was so needed, so interesting. And and not that anybody is trying to go back to college, but like if somebody were, (laughs) this is the kind of thing that I would be so interested in going back to study. from my time in academe, I know that many academic pro- programs come to be because we are looking to address a caesura of some sort, mm-hmm. right? Sure. I would love to hear you reflect a little bit on what led to the creation of this program. Sure, sure. So again, thank you for having me. Um, the, the need for or the existence of this program predates its existence just a brief history, uh, black studies programs in the United States started in the late 1960s uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, you know, as a way to to help further um, educate all people on the history of of black Americans in the United States. Uh, It did not just hit, but not just slavery, but everything that that's come after that. Uh, Berkeley College of Music was founded in 1945 and it, as an institution that was founded on the music of the African diaspora being jazz. Mm. And so uh, that, that's been part of our DNA as an institution. Um, so theory and method has been taught, various types of, of Black American music have been taught. But in terms of the cultural and the social context of those musics, uh, they were taught in pockets uh, kind of throughout our institution, but it, it really was not until the early 2000s that our provost at the time, Dr. Larry Simpson, an African-American uh, administrator, uh, really wanted to, to institutionalize it a bit more. So he hired our first faculty member, Dr. Bill Banfield, as the first professor mm. of Africana Studies. And Dr. Banfield's role was to, uh, to really start to formalize uh, a, a program. Um, so he was teaching courses primarily in history and music history. Um, on music of the African diaspora based in the United States. And the other piece of his work was that he was uh, creating a scholar and a scholar and concert uh, series um, as part of his workload. And so um, I joined the department um, as the assistant chair in 2006. Um, so I worked with, with Dr. Banfield for about 10 years. Um, over, over that time, you know, we had brought in... Uh, uh, critics and scholars such as Stanley Crouch and Robin Kelly on the music side. We brought in Jerry Allen. We brought in the Clark sisters for big gospel mm-hmm. concerts. Mm-hmm. You name it, we we brought folks in, um, and so that was that that you know ran uh, for for a good long while, and then COVID hit, uh, and so you know as as the world shifted, um, we were not able to bring in folks live in person anymore. Um, and it was also a, a point in time where people started to really think about and reflect on where they were in life and what they wanted to do. So Dr. Banfield, you know, had been in that, that space and decided that it was time for him to retire. 
Um, so he retired from Berkeley and has gone on to do other great things here within Boston and still connected to music and scholarship. The following year, our provost, Dr. Larry Simpson, decided to retire. Um, and so as part of Dr. Simpson's uh, last, you know, last few acts as provost, he decided to really institutionalize Africana studies. So it was not it was it was not just a program within a department. It became its own academic division or mm. unit. Um, and so within that unit um, sits the Africana Studies Center that Dr. Banfield created, a physical space for folks to come in uh, for talks, discussion, meetings, uh, classes could meet with special guest artists and so forth. And then the other piece of our division is the academic department, which is this new, uh, relatively new area that I'm working with. And will you um, describe the actual Black music and culture program? Because I, I think that yeah. that piece of actually sort of hearing what it is could be really compelling for our listeners. Sure, sure. Um, so it actually, uh, the, the program is actually a Bachelor of Music. And the new program really looks at music and the arts that have been influenced by the global diaspora, not just in the United States, but around the globe. And primarily through looking at the social and cultural context of a diaspora, um, the social context and, and cultural context of dance, theater, and music, which we refer to as creative Black expression. Uh, and so students who will be in our programs, uh, they will be full-fledged musicians. So they will go through the Berkeley uh, music curriculum, harmony, ear training, and so forth. So they'll be fully, fully trained as musicians when they graduate. So that's one third of their degree program. Uh, the second third is liberal arts and sciences. Um, and so they'll complete that sequence of courses throughout their four years with us. And then the third third of the degree is Africana studies. So the, the courses that you mentioned earlier, uh, Black Liberation Music and so forth, uh, the, and, and some of the others, um, those are the courses that we design and offer uh, to students, not just within our major, but they're open to students uh, across our learning environments. That's really our, our, a big part of our philosophy. Uh, we see ourselves as a beloved community, borrowing from Dr. King and Bell Hooks and other educators and, and philosophers, that everyone is welcome. All we ask is that you have an interest, uh, an interest in learning and, and learning more about things that are happening in your world. And you may not know the origin of them uh, or music that you might like or history that you may not have learned about before. Um, those kinds of things. So the other thing that I'll mention in terms of the origins of this program is that um, this just this did not just come out of nowhere. For for many decades, faculty, staff, and students really advocated for a program like this. Um, so in relation to when the Black Studies program started across the United States in the '60s, um, those those same sentiments were being shared here at Berkeley. I won't linger on it because if you know, sure. you know, but um, just the idea <laughs> of this as an intervention in a traditional conservatory context like Boston mm -hmm. is is really, really significant. Yes. Um, so, yeah, super, super awesome. Um, Thank you. Yeah, we, we, we did uh, we did some research and some homework. Um, no other conservatory within the United States is really offering anything like this. 
within and our relationship with the conservatory is that conservatory students, uh, you know, will have a, a BFA or Bachelor of Fine Arts in either music, dance, or theater, but they can minor in Africana studies. And and to our knowledge, no other conservatory is doing anything like that. So we're we're very proud of that. I'm just in awe listening to you because that's <laughs> that what Lee said. If I were to be going back to school, right? <laughs> well, we have events uh, that anyone can. They're open to the public, so you don't have to be a student uh, to to engage with what we're doing. So. Yeah, I'm like, can I can I audit a class or something? <laughs> <laughs> I'm especially I'm especially caught on you talking about the diaspora. And this being a, a really diasporic look yes. at Black yes. music. And I think often, I mean, just because of, I mean, we're based in America. Berkeley is based in the United States. Um, and sometimes when people are talking about Black folks' contributions to music, it ends up being very United States kind of central. Can you talk yes. about a bit just why it's important that this program is connecting parts of the diaspora and really telling the complete story. I mean, I know we're oh, we're always talking to each other, always have been. I think of Blackness as being borderless, but can you talk mm-hmm. about just why that's so important in uh, our music education? Sure, sure. Um, the continent of Africa is where civilization began, and, you know, and, uh, and that's proven through anthropology and, uh, and other disciplines. Uh, it's the start of, of human civilization, and so as folks left the continent either willingly or unwillingly uh they took their their cultures with them uh, I, I think a, a big thing to remember is that the continent of africa is not monolithic there are multiple countries multiple cultures multiple traditions that exist and so as as we moved from the continent throughout the globe we took those things with us we we took uh, seeds of, of foods and plants with us. We we took our stories, we took our traditions and our customs. Um, and so it, it's important for, for folks to understand how those customs uh, and cultures were kind of added to other existing cultures and created something new. Um, and, and that's something that our, our, our Sugar Road course, uh, it's called the Sugar Road the sweet and sour history of uh, the African diaspora really focuses on, uh, in particular, uh, South America. And so as the transatlantic slave trade was was happening for sugar plantations in particular in South America and other crops, uh, Brazil and, and other parts of South America uh, received African sold African slaves. Um, those folks were there and mixed with the indigenous folks. And so over time, um, mixed in terms of, of culture and, and foods and all those things and, and histories created something new. And so it's important for, for folks to realize that um, and not just South America and the United States, but parts, you know, Europe um, and, and Asia. You know, there, there are elements of, of those cultures that can be traced directly back to the continent of Africa. Um, and so it's important for under, for folks to understand that folks from Africa are not and have, should not be seen as separate and apart from, but we've been a part of human culture as long as it's existed. And so we, what we try to do is help students look at the specific contributions, uh, the mindset, um, the traditions, um, 
in our institution, it's it's primarily through Black creative expression and the arts, um, but we also offer history classes and we'll offer courses that look at uh, politics and and other dimensions of of culture to help folks better understand uh, the influences, the the, the positive influences of, of African cultures. I have I have a, a follow a follow up to that also. Sure. Did you find that? In your own like music education, like did you find that same kind of interconnectedness and like in which ways is this maybe different or the same from mm. how you were taught black music or the history of black music? Sure, sure. Um, so so full disclosure, I'm not a trained musician. Uh, my background's education, but uh, my my application is music and the arts. So so for me, this role is really kind of the melding of two two of my favorite worlds uh, but growing up and you know hearing hearing music music classes all of that um, no those things were not discussed I, I don't even know to, to what degree people even knew about that uh, when, when I was growing up way back in the 20th century no we, we you know we, we were just taught that this is the song this is the music here's the composer here's the tune yeah um, and, you know, I've, I've sung with choral groups, uh, you know, in undergrad and graduate school, primarily European music uh, written by European white composers, which is great. And, they're, they're, you know, that that's part of part of the music lands, musical landscape. But there are other folks uh, like William Grant Still and Florence Price and other folks who can have contributed um, in particular to classical music. Um, that that folks are really not aware of. One of our new courses this semester is on uh, African American and, and Black uh, cult, uh, classical music composers, uh, which we're just starting next week. Um, so so for me, you know, I've, it's been really kind of a a, a crash course over the years. Yeah, I had similar experiences here, <laughs> and I often felt the only reason I got a more uh, complete. Uh, arts education is because I went to HBCU. Yep. I went to Howard University. Right. Other, but otherwise, if I if I had it, yes, yeah, and self <laughs> we're self taught. You know, many yep. of us are self taught in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So one thing that we were talking about earlier is sort of you know we had this you know huge moment of you know this huge racial reckoning, especially here in in the U.S. in 2020 and 2021. And we were talking earlier about how it just sort of feels like that pendulum has really swung back and all of this mm -hmm. talk about, you know, CRT and all of these DEI programs on the chopping block. And also part of that is just sort of this feeling of sort of kind of retrenchment, sort of this um, this idea that so much of our culture, so much of our our creative Black expression is sort of being stifled, being canceled, being erased. And I'm wondering if that's something that, you know, you are seeing and experiencing one of the reasons why, you know, preserving our histories and our legacies in this way is so important to you. And I'm also curious, like, if you've gotten any sort of pushback in in that way mm. you know i know you mm. said that the the provost and the president um have been very supportive but you know has there been any sort of dissension on um, that you've experienced and and what would you what do you say to those people sure so i'll take the the first part first 
So, yeah, I mean, the, the events, uh, you know, since uh, 2020, you know, COVID and uh, social justice protests and George Floyd and all of those things have really had a pretty large impact, I think, on, on all of us um, and in, in multiple industries and in education in particular. You know, as an educator, my, my part, part of my my philosophy is that it's important to look at at issues through multiple lenses. Um, we may not agree with everything that we hear, and and that's okay. But I think we need to try and maybe try and understand as much as we can where that dissenting uh, opinion is coming from. Uh, generally, it comes from fear, uh, fear of change, fear of loss. I think uh, in, in, because of all that that's happened. It has really helped to inspire me more and more to do the work that I'm doing. I feel like everything that I've done um, in my professional career of, of working in nonprofits and K-12 teaching and uh, working in colleges and universities, all of that has really led me to this point in, in my my life and my career uh, to create something that that is lasting and something that helps people understand the larger story, uh, the larger history. Um, th this work for me is, is, is professional, yes, but it's also personal. One of the reasons why, and I think many of us of African descent who go into education, I can only, I can speak for myself, but, you know, knowing that I had ancestors uh, for whom education was illegal, you know, they, they were not allowed to learn to read and write during the period of slavery um, or during, you know, during Jim Crow, uh, you know, I've, I've had relatives who um, had to quit school early on, like in elementary school, uh, to help support their immediate family. And I'm a first-generation college student, so I, I feel that I, I carry that responsibility for for my relatives and ancestors who could not. I, I feel that very uh, deeply. Um, that that helps to motivate me and to keep me going when. You know, I hear things on the news and, you know, about legislation and this is happening here and this opposition is happening. Um, it's just it's too important. It's just too important to, to, to drop. We, we need we need to do this. And and the world needs it. Uh, the, the world needs to know the contributions of folks of African descent, um, what we've done, what we're able to do. You know, to help break the stereotypes uh, that have been perpetuated for for centuries. You know, I'm the first to to get a master's and a PhD in my family, so that's, um, you know, I, that for my my family is very proud of that. But I, but looking looking back, I know that they were intelligent enough to do this. They just didn't have access, and and access is again is another piece of this. Uh, providing access for all students to learn about what we're offering is huge. Um, it's the college experience, and so in college, you're you're there to to learn about things that you didn't know about be before, uh, to be challenged in um, in a caring way. In terms of, you may not have heard about this, or you may not know this dynamic, or you may not know that this group of people created X, Y, and Z, um, or created this new art form. And so, you know, our goal is to have, you know, students who not only know the history and the influence on the arts, but also uh, folks who um, can analyze an issue or a problem, uh, people who are critical thinkers, 
again, folks who can look at an issue through multiple lenses and and have a better, bigger understanding of those things. Um, and, and that's always been a part of my educational philosophy long before um, the, the events of, of 2020 and, and COVID happened. But it's because of those events in 2020 and, and, and after um, that really fuel uh, what I'm doing. And, and it's um, not that I didn't have the passion before, but looking at what's happening on the ground and in the world, it makes me that much more uh, excited and motivated and uh, dedicated uh, to to the work that we're doing. Um, and we've we have gotten we've gotten feedback from from students and folks on campus who have said it's about time. <laughs> you know, where we're founded on the music of the African diaspora, it's about yeah, time yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for for this to happen. I think that in terms of pushback, we I've not received any direct pushback, but I have I have had encounters with folks who wonder if they belong. Like, can can they be part of what we're offering? We we offer an event every year. It's in, a, it's in its second year now, called the Black Joy Block Party in September. And it's a welcome event for new faculty and staff to campus. It's a welcome back event for those of us who are returning. And it's not, again, not just for Aphrodite sport folks, but it's for everyone, no matter what your, your background is. Um, there's a, a, a brand new student. Uh, this was a September a year ago who, you know, heard the music and saw folks gathering and dancing and, and, and just really having a great time. It was a, a great weather day. So we were outside and the student said, can, can I join? Can, you know, what, what is this? And I said, oh, it's our Black Joy Black Party. And he said, can I join? And it took me aback a bit. Um, and so I said, well, tell me, tell me what made you ask that question. And he said, well, I'm not of Afro-Diasporic descent. That's not my, my, my background, but I'm really interested in, in learning. Uh, you know, I, I love black music and, and I really want to learn more about that and the, the culture behind it and the influences. And I said, you are more than welcome to join not just this event, but anything that we offer. So anything that you see with, Berkeley Africana Studies on the flyer or, you know, on, on our advertising, you and anyone else is more than welcome to, to join. So it was a it was a real reminder for me to really repeat and repeat and repeat that we are for everyone. There's enough sentiment in the world where people are kind of are siloed and, and just kind of hang out with the folks who look like them or maybe same socioeconomic background or raised, you know, the same way. We need to break out of that. Like we need to, you know, we need to, to break down those barriers and we really need to uh, to be open uh, to learning about, about folks who were not raised like us, folks who don't look like us, folks who may not think like us, because we all have positive contributions to make. We're all valid. We're all, you know, we all need to be validated um, in our humanity. And that's, Underneath all of that, it's really about humanity. There is something really beautiful about this this idea that the the, the doors are open to everyone, right? Like I like I feel like in this political climate where it feels like everybody has to stake a position, that's not a thing that you hear. That is not a sentiment that yeah. you hear a lot. Um, and I feel like there's a way that the very existence of this program is a marker of success around mm. the idea that Thank we you. get to be here, right? And and that 
as many people seem like they're committed to this project of of of, of silencing certain voices like we we yeah. do need programs like this to say yeah. no this is important it's important to talk about to study and to preserve this knowledge is there anything that's coming up that's really exciting or special that you want to make sure that everybody knows about um yeah so so i, I think i mentioned uh, dr karen walwin and her recital on Florence Price that's coming up in February. Um, at the end of our semester, we're having our first uh, first annual Africana Studies Symposium. Uh, 2024 is the centenary uh, birthday of James Baldwin. And so that is our theme. Um, and our guest uh, speaker is Dr. Eddie Glaude. Um, during COVID, he wrote a book about his reflections on James Baldwin. Uh, during the George Floyd uh, period and during COVID. Uh, so he'll speak um, to, to folks about that. And then he has a brand new book that's coming out in April um, about um, kind of everyday heroes. So folks uh, like Ella Baker and, and, and uh, some other folks who um, saw a need and, and addressed it. Um, and then it, they just kind of uh, became legendary. Uh, that was not their intent. They were just addressing what the need was uh, at that time, uh, but but made a huge impact on on society. Uh, so he um, is going to talk about that book as well. Um, so so we're we're reaching out to folks, um, connecting with other Africana studies, Black studies, African American studies here in Boston and also uh, across the country. A big part of my work that first year was to really reach out to colleagues to find out what they were doing, how their programs were set up, and then for me to reflect on how do we make this uh, Berkeley, uh, very, very Berkeley. And, and uh, for us, it's about the arts, um, but also infusing history and culture and, and all of those things. We also advertise um, everything that we do on Instagram. Uh, so Berkeley, B-E-R-K-L-E-E underscore Africana. Uh, is our handle, and you can find um, anything that we're doing there from advertising new courses to events to guest artists who are coming. We've had lots and lots of students, you know, visit visit that site. Well, that sounds incredible. So beautiful. First of all, I just want to thank you for all of the work that you're doing because it's so incredible and so impactful, and it's going to make such an important change uh, in the future and creating a more inclusive and accessible, um, world for artists and, and everyone really. So, I mean, thank you for the work that you're doing sure. and thank, thank you. And thank you so, so much for being a part of our show. Um, everybody go check out the Africana studies, uh, program at Berkeley and, uh, we will be right back with the morning announcements. Thank you, Dr. Mason. Great. Thanks everyone. <laughs> Pleasure. classmates. My name is Emily Mettenbrink. I'm a violinist and performer with a passion for collaboration in the arts. Each episode, I will be bringing you the morning announcements, a short list of events and experiences, both live and virtual, that we think are cool and maybe you should check out. This week, if you are turned on by the week's conversations and you're inspired to seek out some art, music, and dance inspired by the African diaspora, 
Here are a few suggestions from art class happening in New York and virtually within the next two weeks. First, Jazz at Lincoln Center, Josh Evans Big Band, Music of the Diaspora. Over the years, trumpet master Josh Evans has collaborated with a roster of great artists, including Jackie McLean, Cedar Walton, Rashid Ali, and Gregory Porter, just to name a few. For two nights, he brings his big band to Dizzy's Club at Lincoln Center, presenting his own arrangements of original material and standard tunes that celebrate the musical impact of the African diaspora. I chose this event in particular because it connects to today's topic, but the whole month at Dizzy's is fire and includes a concert honoring Nina Simone and Abby Lincoln, a Fat Tuesday event with Alfonso Horn and the Gotham Kings, and an appearance by the Juilliard Jazz Ensembles with music from Africa to Cuba to New York City. Josh Evans' big band takes place on January 31st and February 1st at Dizzy's Club at Jazz at Lincoln Center. Next, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts celebrates the fundamental contributions of artists of color and artists from immigrant and indigenous communities to the history of modern dance in a new large-scale exhibition called Border Crossings, Exile and American Modern Dance. Through an examination of war, exile, inequality, and injustice, the exhibition constructs a new narrative of 20th century modern dance performance with a fuller, more inclusive history focusing on the exiled and marginalized dancers that that catalyzed modern dance. The exhibit is available in person, but the website includes downloadable slides of the works included in the exhibit, as well as links to many books used in the research for creating the exhibit. It is on display through March 16th, 2024 at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. As a third suggestion, I want to encourage my classmates, wherever you might be in the world, to go out and celebrate Black History Month and its 2024 theme, African Americans and the Arts. This theme creates a great opportunity for communities everywhere to highlight Black arts and artisans and a chance for each of us to see and hear and experience great live art. If you'd like more information on the events I've highlighted, check out the links in the show notes, and I'll be back next time with more cool live art for you to experience. All right, everybody, welcome back. Class is back in session, and it is time for a little segment I like to call Kinfolk. Kinfolk was created out of love for the arts and culture of the Black diaspora, but especially a love for how it connects us all, how we've created all these different, beautiful, resilient, creative traditions throughout the diaspora, but they still lead us back to that common African root. And today we're going to be talking about that in terms of music, highlighting the Black Music Project and its founder and director, Christopher Fuller. Yay, welcome. Uh, Christopher Fuller is the founder and director of the Black Music Project, an interactive exhibit celebrating, promoting, and preserving the idea that the history of Black American music is the story of America. Christopher is a well-known graphic facilitator, illustrator, and visual storyteller, and the owner of Griot's Eye and Ink. He is considered one of the graphic facilitation community's leading innovators and pioneers, having worked in that unique industry for 30 years across five continents and nearly 20 countries. 
Mr. Fuller originated the Black Music Project idea in February 2018 when he sketched out the major musical genres birthed by African-Americans in the drawing seen in the Black Music Project's introductory video. That drawing and its genre mapping are the catalyst and the backbone of the site. Mr. Fuller is a visual arts graduate of Rutgers University. He lives in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Mr. Fuller. We're so excited to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I am really excited to be here. Uh, this is a great opportunity. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We're excited to have you. First, I would love to know more about graphic facilitation. Tell us what is graphic facilitation and how did that medium help you create the Black Music Project? Uh, yeah, uh, what graphic facilitation is, is using visual skills, graphic skills, drawing skills, combined first and foremost with listening skills to help companies and organizations work through strategy, visioning, mission, brainstorming, ideation. So I've had this career in this unusual field, which is growing, especially in the last, I'd say, um, 10 or so years. It's If you go to a conference or if you've ever seen, for instance, uh, one of those RS Animate style videos where you just see the person's elbow, like, you know, whiteboard explainer, that all came out of this field, which was born in the early 70s, of course, in the Bay Area. Um, uh, man named David Sibbett is considered kind of the, the father of that field. I got into it working with a very small boutique consulting company in Orlando, Florida. And I was just out of uh, college with my art degree, which, you know, it's not the instant ticket to the big time that <laughs> a lot of people <laughs> might think it is. And so I ended up, uh, my parents had moved to Orlando while I was in college. So I ended up moving in with them. And of course, the theme parks, I was doing some freelance caricature work, right? Okay. Not that good at it. Um, <laughs> but uh, while I was there, there happened to be this, this little company called MG Taylor that was hosting this huge workshop for the city of Orlando. And they needed more what they called scribes, which I then you know, didn't know that term. And that is graphic recording where you go to a meeting, you listen, you create a mind map, um, which is basically, uh, as you hear these things, you just start connecting the ideas. Now, it was free. It was a volunteer thing. So when I was first told about it by my father, who had been in one of their uh, city sessions, and I said, well, you know, I don't want to do it because it's free. Uh, but here's one thing. Uh, I... Sometimes, you know, I, I speak at, at schools, and I tell kids, don't chase money, chase interesting opportunities. Because when it was then explained to me what it really was, uh, I was just like, oh, well, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you lead with that? Okay, let me, this sounds interesting. <laughs> so I went, I volunteered. Um, the first time I actually saw someone doing this, this is back in 1992, my jaw literally hit the floor because I realized that one, I was just like, oh my God, like this guy's just, he's, it was amazing to watch somebody listening and drawing these, this conversation out. And then two, uh, I said, what the bleep is this? 
I can't believe it wasn't at, why wasn't this at the job fair? Like I sent my portfolio to Disney, Marvel, all these things got rejected. Um, and here this thing was. So anyway, I ended up volunteering, made enough of an impression on the people that they invited me to just kind of apprentice with them. I did. They hired me. I became a full-time member of the staff. We started doing these events for all kinds of corporations all over the country. We got quote unquote business famous, meaning the big consulting companies heard about what we were doing. In 1995, Ernst & Young laid license our, our the methodology and said that they were going to create our style of workshops, which um, use graphic recording as a part of it and make this a worldwide thing. And I remember their head partner at the time, um, a guy named Lee Sage, he pointed to me and he used to call me Mr. Picasso. And he said, we're going to take and we're going to make a bunch of Mr. Picassos all over the world. Now I was in my like, you know, early 20s and I'm thinking like, yeah, I can't be copied. <laughs> you know, I was like, you know what? Uh, I was the, the hubris of youth because I was completely wrong. It's now it's a worldwide thing. It's it's <laughs> it's great. It's beautiful to see. And I because of this, I've been able to work, like I said, in five continents, now over 20 countries, work within the, the Black Music Project comes out of all that travel. You know, I was doing a thing in in Ghana for the World Economic Forum. And uh, and just it was, you know, I visited that uh, door of no return. And, and like a lot of people, just about everybody who goes through there who is of uh, African descent, uh, it's a transformative experience. And so that... Uh, kind of lit that idea back in, I want to say, yeah, 20, 2018, 2017. It's beautiful that a trip to Ghana would inspire you like that. And I wonder if you could say more about just what the Black Music Project is and the different types of even art that go that go into it. Because yes, it's the Black Music Project. <laughs> there's there's visual art that's part of it to tell the whole story. There, there's all kinds of things. So say more yeah. about just how it is, what it is and how it came together. Well, when I went out on my own after I, I left that company, I, I started my company called Griot's Eye. Now Griot, um, as your listeners probably are well aware of, is a storyteller in West African tradition. And so I knew that my job was basically storytelling, right? Because I would go to these meetings, but I would visually storytell. So I said, you know what? And and now it's funny because now everybody, you know, there's this big storytelling movement. But in 1998, when I told somebody the name of the company, first they asked me why, like what it was, and then why I named it that way. And I had to explain that what we what we really were were storytellers. And it didn't really hit home with this person, you know. Um, but now it does. And so I knew um, that uh, I wanted to tell stories visually. And I've been doing that for other companies. You know, I've been helping, you know, huge companies, you know, Fortune 100 companies work on, you know, vision statements and, and mission. And, and I've seen things that I've done in meetings become huge commercial campaigns. Uh, and so I wanted to tell my own story, right? I've been telling enough visual stories for other people. And so when I was working in Africa on this World Economic Forum, you know, huge conference about um, private and public investment in West Africa and raising, more importantly, uh, you know, domestic investments. And it was just 
it was a really uh, interesting event. You know, I met a lot of just, you know, great people. But then after it was over, that's when I did this, uh, you know, small tour of the area and, and went to the door of no return. And uh, when you see the, you know, they call it, you know, the slave castle. And it, it strikes you. It, the, 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 you have a memory of it, even though you weren't there. Like it stirred something in me, right? And they have a wall of the diaspora, which is just kind of you know well-known uh, black people throughout the world, but of you know probably you know West African descent. So of course you'll see like you know like Michelle Obama is on you know photos you know people who visited or just you know famous like you know Louis Armstrong, and I noticed that there was out of all of these you know, great people on there, you know, you know, Malcolm X, Dr. King, but there was a real high number of musicians, right? Mm. And I, you know, and that it kind of clicked then that, uh, gosh, you know, our, our music really has impacted the world. And I tell just very quickly, I was working in Berlin once and a friend of mine invited me to go to a house party and I didn't really want to go because I felt I had aged out <laughs> that world. But uh, I went and, you know, because, you know, we were there, uh, somebody said, oh, you know, there's, you know, you know, African-Americans here, you know. And one of the DJs, a German guy, uh, when he was like on his break, uh, was like, hey, you know, man, I should be thanking you for this music. And, I've heard, and I'm just like, well, you know, where's this guy, cat going from? embracing myself or something you know <laughs> and uh he's like no he's like you know house music it's from chicago you know black people in chicago and mm -hmm. i was just like well you know he's right but if i went back to america how many people would know that that house yeah. music comes out of chicago right um that black people you know i knew it because i'm from Aurora, Illinois was a suburb of Chicago. We're very proud of everything that comes out of the area. <laughs> Most other people wouldn't. And so I had that in my brain. And then once again, once I was in uh, West Africa, that's when I came back and I, I keep a journal and I just I mapped out all the, the stuff off the top of my head, all the genres I could think of and just started connecting them. And I had that drawing and I would look at it and think, oh, you know, I need to do something with this. Like, you know, at some point, I'd show it to people I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I ended up partnering with uh, a company that is run by this young kid, a brilliant uh, guy. And I give him a shout out right now, Callum Griffith and his company, uh, uh, Composite Global, who helped me uh, design my Griot's Eye website. And I showed this to him. And I said, like, this has to be something bigger. Can you help me? And because I didn't have all the technical skill, but combined with um our design skill and his you know technical and design abilities uh we created this site launched it a couple of years ago this was all happening during the pandemic when i had stopped traveling and i was staring at a wall for a couple of years so i had a lot of room to you know to, to, to work on these kind of projects you know I, I i'm still working on it still you know we're a team we still you know we just put out a great video on big mama thornton but you know it's Yes, As Grill's eyes picked up again. So it's, it's, you know, it's not on the front burner as much only because Grill's eyes what keeps the lights on and pays the bills. I'm so curious about 
just the connections that you found while putting together the archive and especially the connections that you feel like have been most erased. Um, you know, on this this season of art class and in our Kim Folk segments, we're going to focus a lot on especially folk music and the banjo. And I know those especially, uh, yes. those especially, I feel like <laughs> Black presence just erased or completely forgotten. Yes. Um, can you talk about like just how that how that happened with with folk and maybe with some other genres too? And I see like there's some information you had on the past slide about just how like the percentage of of African Americans here and just how much we have contributed to to um Black America to music as Black people to all of American music as Black people. Well, what what I like to say is you know having done all this travel is that if you take Black culture out of America. It doesn't have its own unique identity, or at least uh, separate from Europe, or, or one that as would be it wouldn't be nearly as impactful, right? And so, what we think of as American roots music, Americana, that is at its core heavily black influenced, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the banjo, of course, we we talk about because you know the banjo was developed from memories that the enslaved people brought with them uh, of their gourd instruments, you know, of the, the lute instruments that the griots would use. And they created these instruments, which were then, you know, of course, evolved over time to bring in other aspects because, you know, America is a mix of, you know, all different, you know, cultures and this kind of thing. And of course, you know, Scotch-Irish were very important to the, the modern banjo. But the genesis of it comes from our memories. Uh, it's been largely forgotten because, let's face it, menstruacy, racism, white supremacy. So, so much of that was, I say, it's partly deliberate that, you know, white America uh, doesn't like to acknowledge its Black um, foundations, you know, or it's, you know, constantly, uh, you know, power groups are constantly working to right people um, out of history that either don't fit the narrative or they can't control. And so that is why that happened. And then for us, the, the reason why it's been forgotten by Blacks is because it's tied to a painful part of our history. And if there's one thing about Black folk is that we are resilient, we are creative, and we are innovative. But sometimes that means, um, you know, uh, blues music, you know, that's just, I don't want to listen to that old timey, you know, depressing, mm. you know, and so you move on, you know, <laughs> you know, you're on to the next one kind of thing. And so that is just kind of why it was lost to history. And, and, and that's banjo music, but you could go the Western style, cowboy music, the most famous Western uh, song that we all know is Home on the Range, right? Home, home on the range. I can't sing. I wish Alyssa was here because help me out. Uh, but home on the range is at least the version that has become popular. That is was taken from black cowboys. Now a lot of Americans what? don't even know that there were black cowboys, but about a quarter of the cowboys were cowboys, right? And were black African American cowboys. As a matter of fact, the term cowboy was 
specifically used only for blacks uh, at the time whites were called cow hands mm. uh, blacks were called cowboys because they had to put that ratio uh you know uh, you know we could never be a, a man right mm. uh, so we had to be a boy right and it's kind of ironic that today the cowboy which is so uh, a part of Americana masculinity Americans team the Dallas Cowboys uh, <laughs> most people don't know that that comes from black folk that that was you know that that term was uh let's fade a, a bit of a uh, it was a put down you know yeah but uh here we are so it's 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 a running theme throughout uh history and and I could go on um but I, I'll stop here <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, okay. I did not know that about home on the range. I knew about black cowboys, but not about home on the range. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I, I think too about just how black folks in our creation just seem so boundless and borderless and, you know, keep creating new things and new things, which is beautiful. But what do you think we lose when we don't hold on to the things that we've created in the past, and especially if we're not teaching it to future generations. Well, that's why the Black Music Project exists. Um, we want to keep that memory alive as, as, a memory, as a living memory, because I say that without it, the, the new art that's created, one can get, let's face it, especially as we get more and more into the digital world, you know, we, we cover the aspect um, of up to the beginning of the new millennium, right? Because when I say that, you know, you need a 20 years perspective to really examine something, right? And so I say without keeping these memories alive, you 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 lose a, a piece of yourself, a, a piece of your 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 heart, your culture. Things get can get stale creatively. Things can get to um uh you know a copy of a copy of a copy yeah. without that original um is it's it's not as it's not as vibrant right it's not as engaging and you know i don't get me wrong i i i love a lot of the music today but there is a lot of especially in the mainstream r&b uh hip hop you know a, a lot of it that is controlled by you know the 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 bigger record companies. Some of it is is, is a little stale. It's a little repetitive. <laughs> um, you know, everybody's chasing the dollar. You know, uh, you know they. You know, I. You know, would always tell my nieces and nephews just like y'all don't know about harmonies. Y'all don't know about you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like uh, you know, uh, gosh, don't even get me started because then I, I you know get off my lawn, you kids. No. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean that's so that's so true though and I mean there's <laughs> I think at the time that we release this it'll still be recent but <laughs> thinking about even like most deaths most recent comments about about Drake and hip hop and oh, yeah. hip hop I mean of course people took the sound clip and made it about Drake but it was really about hip hop as a as a whole and about the roots of the genre and about it being a people's music and what happens when the 
people's music becomes commercialized and capitalized on by people outside of the community. That's really what it was about. <laughs> yeah, the internet is, um, and and social media in particular, it is a, I call it a, a, a CSM, context smashing machine. So it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, just, just the headline is all people, did you hear, did you see, you know, I'm just like, oh, slow down now. But uh, yeah, no, I, I saw uh, most Steph's comments and he was, yeah, he, he's right on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I also, when I think about like Black folks in American music and, okay, really Black culture in general, among African-Americans, I think we don't, I mean, it's part of the overall miseducation, but I think we don't always see our connection to other parts of the diaspora. Mm. and how they've always been in in conversation with each other you know the music of the caribbean is right there in conversation with us we're creating it together so can you speak to how that like diasporic aspect shows up in the black music project yes uh it's it's funny because um just recently we do a lot of posting on one of the new social media um, sites where we post these storytelling threads. It's spoutable because you can tell stories there. So I was telling a story about um, uh, DJ Cool Herc and the birth of hip hop, you know, the, for the 50th anniversary yeah. and uh, telling, you know, making the connection, you know, he, he was a Jamaican immigrant who brought um, the memories of the sound system culture in Jamaica. Now, the sound system culture is a mix of, uh, of course, um, the Jamaican toasting and the um, the Hakka Chinese, which were a uh, immigrant population that came to Jamaica, you know, to find work and, uh, uh, you know, mixed with the Jamaican culture, created its this own Chinese Jamaican culture. Um, and, you know, and I grew up in New Jersey, so I and I had some friends of, of, of that of that culture. Um, shout out to my friend Vic if he's listening. Uh, anyway, I posted this story and somebody commented, you know, they commented like, oh, you know, what are you talking about? You know, hip hop born in the Bronx. I said, well, yes, I didn't say all I'm, I'm making a connection. I, I'm not <laughs> trying to take away um, from uh, the, the, the catalyst of it. I'm just trying to show that that Jamaican culture, right? mixed with that Chinese Jamaican culture. I mean, there's all, there's this crosstalk that's going on all the time. Afro-Latin music, right? The, 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 the most, um, the, the person who we consider most is, is Dizzy Gillespie, the African-American man though, who saw those threads, incorporated that South American thread um, and really helped explode that, uh, that genre, you know, mm -hmm. uh, across the world. Uh, when I, and all, and all the travels that I've done, I realized how much influence that we have, right? I, I did um, a bunch of work in Italy and there is an Italian um, hip hop community. And that struck me. It's just, you know, same thing in Asia. I mean, but basically every, everywhere I've gone, um, we are. Uh, and Black people, um, I always say you will be shocked. You're going to go to Antarctica. 
Antarctica or something, and there's going to be a brother down there who's like who's DJing and like in that from that one little small seed that you know. So so yeah, you'll always be shocked at how these connections um, just continue to to grow and and flow. Yeah, yeah, we're so much more interconnected, and things aren't as bordered as we think. They are. <laughs> Technology has made it even, I mean, back in the day, it, you know, it had to be like, you know, steamships carrying records back to England or something, blues records. Now the internet, you know, there could be, um, you know, for, for instance, the, the music now, um, the, 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 the African uh, dance music that is a part of, um, you know, electronic music that was, you know, born out of kids, you know, posting to, YouTube and TikTok and yeah, uh, so yeah, it's just it's it's continuing to uh, flow. But like I always say, that there's a musical dialogue that's going on between these cultures, but uh, the root of it goes back to Af- Africa. You know, the rhythm, the melody, the drum. Um, that's 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 the root of it. Mm. I'm mean, talking about the. The internet, though, I want to go back to that because I think we're like, there's a line or a line that I see we're dancing on of just there's some ways it can obscure things and erase nuance and context, <laughs> you know, really flip things. But then there's a way that we can use it for preservation, for uh, for education, and I mean, yeah. projects like the Black Music Project. I wonder, like, your thoughts on uh, thoughts on that and how you're using technology and social media and the in the internet to your benefit yeah you, you know just just the times that we're living in now let's face it things are getting uh a little scary we're marching mm-hmm. towards fascism and when i created the uh black music project i knew that uh you know it was, it was right at the beginning of the the attacks on like you know uh critical race theory I was watching people uh, being slaughtered for telling the truth. Uh, and, you know, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones in the 1619 Project, she was just, and I was just like, wow, man, you know, this is such bleep. And I realized that telling, using the internet and telling, um, but specifically focusing on music, right? And, and this, it wasn't, not my intent, but I got an email from, Somebody who I had met through my work life. I, I was doing a lot of work in the Midwest, and um, one of the managers there, white dude, who I pretty damn sure voted for Trump. At least that first time, for sure, right? Conservative guy. <laughs> but you know, I had put this on my LinkedIn, you know, to show, and I got a message from this uh, person. And he was like, hey, you know, this is a really interesting site. You know, I've been checking out, you know, because he did like blues and rock and roll uh, and, you know, some other things. And I thought to myself, gosh, if I told this guy that this was basically just critical race theory put to music, would he still like? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, this is like the Trojan horse, you know, (laughs) to tell this story. So, yeah, the Internet can be used. for good, uh, sometimes and this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to use it for good, you know, trying to, you know, uh, educate people. 
Yeah. So tell us more about what's about what's on the site. What are folks going to find when they go? Uh, how's it how's it organized? If you go uh, visit uh, the site, uh, blackmusicproject.com, it is organized by eras, genres, artists. And then we have exhibits that focus on, you know, specific stories, the banjo, uh, cowboy music, how the city of Portland in the Northwest, which was, I mean, and once I remember it was deemed the whitest city of America, but a lot of people don't know that Portland in the 50s and in the jazz age had a thriving jazz community where a lot of Black artists would um, come through. So we tell a story about how that was lost. Uh, and so, yeah, that is um, the kind of the, um, the, the the framework for the site, you know, you know, you know, telling the story. And that came out of when I did the drawing, I then decided to animate it. Right. Uh, the, the drawing of the genres that connected to the show that web. And it's just this little one minute drawing. But I showing just the drawing and the connections was one thing. But when I added a timeline to it, when I rearranged and made it so that the genres, then I said, now it's a story. Now it's not just, a, you know, like the original drawing, which is just like a web, but um, putting the timeline so I could see like, okay, this pre-Civil War era, you know, then, uh, you know, late 19th century, you know, uh, uh, early 20th century, mid 20th century, civil rights era, uh, you know, funk, you know, uh, you know hip hop. I started putting all this together and realized that, okay, yeah, this is where the um, the story is. It's told over, it's told over centuries. It's told from the first time we step foot in the Americas. We are once again, like part of the foundation of Americana. And even with everything that has been done to us to eradicate us, debase us, uh, we stay resilient. Um, this, flame it ain't dying um you know sometimes you know it might not be burning as bright or you know but it's it's gonna keep on burning ashe i agree i know it will <laughs> uh i mean just look at how many times we've transformed and kept on growing and kept on shining so far the the history of black music is a story of america because in this history of Black music, this resiliency, you find everything about America, right? Um, the good and the bad, um, the heart and the soul, um, the innovation, the creativity. Uh, yeah, so that, that's, we're going to, you know, like I said, just keep um, trying to bring more people into the tent. Um, where I can be found, you know, besides at blackmusicproject.com is grillseye.com where that uh, graphic facilitation rule that I've been in and practiced at um, and keeps me traveling. Uh, I will be teaching a course April 4th and 5th. If you want to come to Houston, Texas, I'm going to be teaching a two-day course on that. So go to grillseye.com forward slash classes and you can learn about that world and and how that has informed the Black Music Project, how, how, how that 30-year career is why this exists now. And if you want to help support us, uh, of course, if you go to blackmusicproject.com, we are uh, fiscally sponsored uh, through 
uh, Fractured At Atlas, which is an art services. So if you want to make a, um, you know, a tax deductible donation, you can. If you want to buy some merch, of course, we've got, you know, cool hoodies and T-shirts um, that you can get um, on the site. So just go to the Black Music Project and click the store. And, you know, we sold a lot of hoodies during Christmas and we could sell a few more so that I can, you know, <laughs> I can keep paying for the. <laughs> For the infrastructure, uh, and yeah, so that's 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 what we that's that's what we do, and um, that's where we are. I want to thank you so much, still so much, for being on the show today. I appreciate you and you emphasizing that the story of Black music is a story of American music. It's intertwined. Can't tell one without the other. I want to encourage everybody again to go to blackmusicproject.com. Check it out. Tell your friends, tell your kids, tell your grandma, tell your neighbor, buy a hoodie, buy one for yourself, buy one for them. And we appreciate you so much, Christopher. We will be back, everybody, with the next part of the show. All right, and we are back. So excited to be here and to talk about all of the Black people, places, <laughs> art, culture, things that are making us happy this week. Of course, this is Pure Black Joy. This is our weekly segment to just lift up um, the the Black things that are making us happy this week. And I think all of us, if you listen to our previous show, um, you all know that we stan Angela Bassett, <laughs> all three of us. She is mother. <laughs> and mother won an honorary Academy Award recently, and we just want to lift her up and honor her and just... Ah, it just, it makes my heart happy. Just <laughs> after all of the exceptional work that she has done, after all of the exceptional art that she has gifted us, um, all these, these decades. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just over the moon for her. It's just amazing. Yeah, so, so deserved. Um, so overdue overdue it, it just re really really overdue but it it felt satisfying right because you know she's been nominated for everything two nominations for the oscar seven emmy nominations and i feel like she's one of those people that everybody gets how good she is and when i talk to people especially you know maybe like friends who are white who don't necessarily follow every black movie and and they'll be shocked they're like wait a minute i thought Angela bassett has had an oscar i'm like no it's it just seems like she was supposed to right mm -hmm. like there's no justice in the world when you kind of sit with the fact that no angela bassett or cicely tyson or um james earl jones the these people no they no so we take this right and and we acknowledge it we also say that, you know, she won, what, like 15 NAACP Image Awards because we kept seeing something and kept having to say, no, 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 we, th th this is it. We get it. You are everything. We love you and we will celebrate you even if everybody else isn't. And so this was, it felt very personally satisfying. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love, and 
appreciate, I mean, Angela and other artists who, when they get that recognition, recognition, the NAACP awards, the, the soul train awards, the, the very black awards. And they're like, yes, this is to be acknowledged by my people. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. I love it. I think she has done that. And at the same time, it's, I know it must be wonderful for her to be acknowledged like that in a room full of her peers, her yeah. industry peers, you know, and I think we all want that for her too. And so it's so, it's so exciting. Yeah. To know that she's been an icon among mm-hmm. like what you can't see, say nothing bad about Angela Bassett ever in front, ever. in front of black people. No, we'll, we'll fight. We will all fight you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's dangerous. It would be a dangerous thing to do. So <laughs> we all know that, but flowers in front of the world. Yes, that's that was beautiful. Yes, and, absolutely. Amen. And so congratulations, Miss Angela Bassett. If you want to come on the show someday, we've got a seat for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also uh, congratulations to Quinta Brunson, who won yes. an Emmy for lead actress in a comedy series. And I know y'all are big Abbott Elementary fans. Again, I don't do fiction, um, <laughs> but I support, I support, I support. <laughs> well, I'll get what, to it one of these days. What was really great about Quince's win, in addition to the fact it was just so deserved, like uh, Abbott Elementary is a, is a joy to watch and she, everybody shines on it, but you know, like knowing that this sort of emerged out of her brain is like a very special way of, of reading it. But it was also the first time that someone had won since Isabel Sanford won for um, Jefferson's in what, like 1981? Like a Black woman had not won in that amount of time. And when Cheryl Lee Ralph won also for Abbott Elementary, the supporting actress Emmy last year, it had been the first time since Jack A had won for 227. And I have feelings and I have perspectives, but we're talking about comedy and as many brilliant black women as there are in comedy like it's a it's a crime right like Mm. like it's actually a crime that like this level of acknowledgement hasn't been happening so i i was particularly pleased with that um it really made me happy because i i think it was just deserved and i think black kids growing up should see this right like it makes a difference Mm -hmm. when you can project yourself into a type of career that you want to have. And that also comes with the same acknowledgement from your peers that everybody else gets to have. I I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we should mention also in the supporting category this year, we also had A.O. Debrie winning for the bear. So. And Niecy Nash winning for um, the Jeffrey Dahmer show I, yes. didn't, I didn't watch but i um i love niecy nash and if she yes. does things that are not about serial killers i am there <laughs> absolutely absolutely well congratulations to all of those amazing talented black actresses thank you for making us happy bringing us some joy making us proud this week and thank you to all of you out there for joining us for another episode of art class um this has been so fun. 
<laughs> I'm so happy we get to do this. And as always, you know, subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends, all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks and um, can't wait uh, to get into more shenanigans with all of y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so we will see you then. Bye, America. Bye-bye. Best dismissed. Class dis. Oh, I like that. Class dismissed. Yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's cute. <right? laughs> Thank you so much for checking out Lincoln Center's art class. The show is hosted by Lee Bynum, Paige Reynolds, aka Mabole Inawale, and me, Rocky Jones. The show is produced and edited by yours truly. Our artwork is by Patricia Sanchez Navarro, and our music is Dope Skeletons by Frequently Asked Music. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can really help us out by telling all of your people about the show, subscribing on your podcast platform of choice, and yes, leaving us a positive review wherever you're listening, but especially on Apple Podcasts. It's a small act, but it really, really helps us out, and we just might read your review on air. If you'd like to learn more about the show, please visit the art class page at lincolncenter.org, follow all of Lincoln Center's various social media profiles, and feel free to reach out to us anytime at artclasspod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time, and until then, class is dismissed. Dismissed.